Well, good morning. I ask you all, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I often say, we've said before, we want to be a church that changes the world for Jesus and one that takes the Great Commission seriously. And this morning we have seen that as evidenced by the fact that we commissioned two teams to go into the nations, to go out and to serve. And we've also been able to witness as a church the baptism of four there this morning. Both of those part of that great commission. Go baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things. So we praise God for what he's doing in the life of our church. I'm looking forward to finishing up here from Timothy and 2 Timothy and then uh, starting next week we will start kind of our summer in the Psalms series again where we'll be going through the Psalms uh, throughout the next uh, several weeks. So I'm excited about that. The 2 Timothy passage will be verse 6 through the end of the chapter. We've kind of scurried through uh, this book, but I feel like God has blessed it. I've enjoyed spending this time here. And in order to kind of set the stage again, I feel like I always have to, have to do that. I want us to kind of be reminded of this letter and what's going on in this letter that will help us, I think, understand these last few words of Timothy. Uh, excuse me, of Paul, as Paul's writing to Timothy, most likely Paul's last letter. The circumstances of Paul's life are important to note here. It's at this point uh, that things are not the best, if you want to use that language for him. Paul is imprisoned. Uh, in fact, he's in prison now in Rome, and, and many weren't even able to find him as they were looking for him. It's the end, basically, of his public ministry. Of course, it's not the end of his ministry itself. It's the end of his public ministry. He's chained. He's still witnessing. The gospel's not bound, he says, but his public ministry has come to an end. He's faced constant persecution over the last several years and even abandonment by many of his followers, his friends, if you will. Yet in the midst of that difficulty, he writes Timothy this letter at the end of his life, seeking to encourage Timothy. Paul is facing so much difficulty, and you would think maybe he writes a letter kind of bitter and mad. He's finishing his course here up. He's done this. He's been a faithful minister, and yet all of these bad things are happening to him. So you would think Paul may write one of discouragement, but in fact, the opposite is true. Paul writes a letter of encouragement to Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy to not be ashamed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and that's a big deal coming from those circumstances that Paul's in. Paul's saying, even though I'm in all the, I'm, don't be ashamed of what this, but, but trust the word, he says. Give your life to the word and remain faithful in all things. And so these words, these encouragements from, Tim, uh, from Paul actually mean something when you understand, mean, mean even more when you understand his context. As we come to the end of the letter here, the apostle begins to speak about his own death. Having, knowing, kind of bringing him up to date of his circumstances, now he begins to speak about his own impending death. I'm always interested in the last words of godly men or women. 
I mean, when we face death, we all know that's a difficult thing. Some things we don't like to talk about at parties and stuff like that. You know, it's not something you just bring up about facing death. But when you watch someone face death who's trusted in Christ and they're, they're facing those last moments and kind of see or hear what they say, it's an encouragement to me. It's an encouragement. I think about Augustus Toplady, one of the great names in all of history, Augustus Toplady. Wish my parents would have named me that, but I, I got Josh. That's okay. Augustus Toplady wrote Rock of Ages. You may have heard that. And as Augustus Toplady was very ill most of his life, he died at 38. But even on his deathbed, his last words recorded were, I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted to praises. That idea of our prayers, hoping they are heard and they uh, have now been converted into praises and them being realized. Or D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist of the 19th century, turned to his sons on his deathbed and said, Boys, if God be your partner, make your plans large. What a great statement to his sons. If God is with you, make your plans large. Or Adoniram Judson, the first Baptist missionary from the Americas, says, even though his body was frail and weak, he stated at the end, I feel so strong in Christ. His last words. What a comfort to me. You know, we're thinking about death. We're thinking about those things. What a comfort. Another place that I've always been comforted is whenever I hear older ministers who have run the race well, if you will, as even Paul says, who, who are at the end of their life and have uh, ministered the gospel for so many years and they've stayed faithful to the Lord. And now what lesson can I learn? How did you get there? How can I learn from that? I remember back early in my ministry, I stumbled, literally stumbled across an interview from Christianity Today in 1980, February 8th, 1980. The interview caught my eye because it was of a preacher that I had grown to love. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a minister in London at Westminster Chapel in the, uh, in the last century, really had his hand in everything in evangelicalism, so well-known. Lloyd-Jones never wrote a book, but they took all of his sermons and transcribed them. Lloyd-Jones preached on Friday nights and on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. On Friday nights, he would preach from September through May, and he preached for 13 years on Friday nights in the book of Romans. How about that? Y'all feel better about four weeks in 2 Timothy, don't you? <laughs> 13 years in the book of Romans. Lloyd-Jones would continue this type of ministry for many years and just become so popular. And, and his, his sermons were unlike anything I'd ever heard or read. And I would listen to them and find so much encouragement. No, I couldn't do that. I couldn't, couldn't be like that. But man, he would encourage me and strengthen me in every one. So when I found this article, this interview, I wanted to read it. And what was interesting is it was Martin Lloyd-Jones being interviewed by Carl F.H. Henry, another hero, uh, the founding editor of Christianity Today, had worked with, with Billy Graham throughout all these years. And so Carl Henry is interviewing Martin Lloyd-Jones, both of them older in life, and they're, they're interviewing. And Carl Henry wants to find out, after talking with him about his ministry, he asked Lloyd-Jones that question I'm always dying to hear from older pastors. He says to, to Lloyd-Jones, if you had something that you could pass on to younger ministers, one thing that you've learned or one thing that's marked your ministry, one thing that you could tell younger ministers of the gospel, what is that one thing? He was 80 years old. Lloyd-Jones would die just a few months later. 
What was that one thing you would want to pass on to ministers of the gospel, Dr. Lloyd-Jones? What's that one thing? And Lloyd-Jones thinks for a second. You can tell it even says this in the piece, kind of a narration. Thinks for a second, and he says, tell them to flee the wrath to come. Well, y'all just like, y'all acted just like Carl Henry. He's like, what? Is that the thing you want to pass on to younger ministers? Is that what you want to tell them? Is that what you want to give to them? You know, I, like, let, let me understand. You've learned many things in your life. You've preached many times. You've done many, so many different places. What's the one thing you want young ministers to learn from you for their ministry? And Lloyd-Jones thought for a minute again, and he said, tell them to flee the wrath to come. I have never forgotten that. And in some ways, that statement of Lloyd-Jones at the end of his ministry kind of haunts or uh, gives the fabric foundation of my own preaching, I think, to this day. The idea that there is judgment that is pending and lives are in the balance and that the thing that we proclaim is that you must flee that wrath that is coming and the only place to flee it is to Christ. I learned that from Lloyd-Jones and it stuck with me. And I just simply say that because I believe, I believe that that's exactly how Timothy is right here with this letter. He's gotten a letter from his dear mentor, Paul. And Paul is writing at the end of it. I'm quite sure Timothy, as young as he is in the ministry, I'm quite sure he never got over this last section. And I'm sure he never got over this book, really, uh, that that Paul wrote him at the end of his ministry. I'm sure it lingered in his mind and hopefully it can linger in ours this morning as well as Paul is writing at the end of his ministry to young Timothy and to us. Paul says this, starting in verse six of chapter four, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he uh, strongly opposed our message. At my first events, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I, res so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila, the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good for us, every part of it. 
Even as Paul tells Timothy in this own book, it is good and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. Father, all of these things we ask your word to do in our hearts and lives this morning. For we are utterly and completely dependent upon you in all of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. While the book of Acts does not tell us about it, history has given us the story of the Apostle Paul after Acts. As you know, the Apostle Paul was martyred there in Rome, having been beheaded for preaching the gospel. Paul, having preached the gospel, had, had been arrested. He'd been arrested, and being a Roman citizen, he had this right, and he exercised it. He appealed all the way up to Caesar. And so Paul appealed to whichever magistrate was next, all the way to the point that he got to make his, his statement before Caesar himself. And Paul, now having written, uh, writing to Timothy, has already made that statement. He knows his appeals are over. He knows his time is short. He knows he is coming to an end. It is getting close. And as he writes there in verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul is dealing honestly with his position. While we'll talk about that in a minute, what I do want to make sure is that we recognize that Paul is not writing this letter as one who has given up. It may seem like that. I've already been poured out. My time is close. I fought my fight. I finished my race. Paul is not writing this letter as one that has given up. In fact, if you read this letter, you've already seen where Paul is still proclaiming the gospel to anybody and everybody, including the ones he's chained to. For while he is bound, the word of God is not bound, Paul says. Paul's continuing in ministry. So he's not writing this out of depression. He's not writing this out of some sense of, of doom and gloom. He's writing this out of a sense of reality. He's still preaching. He's still asking Timothy to come. He tells Timothy, hurry up and get here before winter. And when you're coming, I love the, the personal nature of this. When you're coming, stop by our buddy Carpus's house and get the coat I left there, right? Go by as winter's coming. I'm going to need my coat. I left it at Carpus's house. I need that one. That's my favorite one. Go by and get that. But not only that, he's not in any sense of depression or any mood of giving up. He says, bring the books and the parchments, which are very helpful to me. In other words, I need to keep learning. I keep, need to keep studying the word. Paul is not at some point of depression and saying, I'm just quitting now, Timothy. It's over. He's simply pointing out what is reality. I have completed all of the appeals I have. I've come to the end of the rope and the time is getting near. He still has hope for tomorrow. He wants to see Timothy. He wants to see others. He's just dealing with what is reality. And that's the first thing Paul does. He deals with his reality. He deals with his reality there in verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He uses this uh, this image of sacrifice, the drink offering, whenever the, the lamb was brought to the altar and put there, they would take the wine and pour it out at the base of the offer as this drink offering to it. So Paul is saying, that's my life. Just like that is poured out while the lamb is being slaughtered. So throughout my life, I've been poured out by, for God on this altar, giving the same imagery of Romans chapter 12, where our act of worship is to put ourselves on the altar of God as a living sacrifice. Paul says, that's me. 
I've been poured out and I'm being poured out. I've come to the end of it. I've drained the bottle, if you will. I've come to the end of my race that he'll get to. So he says, my life has been this offering, this sacrifice unto God, and I've used it for that purpose, for that end. That's what I have done. His life was poured out as a sacrifice ultimately to the Lord. Again, that's the calling Paul puts on the people of God. Live your life as a living sacrifice. Paul says, that's what I've done. He adds, my departure, the time for my departure has come. This adds to the gravity of this letter. Timothy maybe didn't know if he'd ever hear from Paul again, but yet he has. But Paul is not going to sugarcoat his, his position and place. He's not going to say, Timothy, everything's cool. I'm all right. Don't worry about me. He's not saying anything like that. Surely he doesn't want him to worry, but he wants him to be clear that death is near for me. I've, I've appealed to everyone. It could be tomorrow for all Paul knows. It could be whenever Caesar has had enough. It could be whenever he deals with it. Paul is dealing with the reality, and he doesn't want just to let Timothy know, hey, it's all going to be okay when it comes to this. He doesn't simply say that. He says, my time has come to an end. My time has come to an end. Paul knows that there's no need to sugarcoat the truth. Death is near. Reality is what Paul wants to deal with. Reality helps us to know and remember that God is in control of all things. You see, there's this argument out there that the world likes to place. It likes to say that religion, what we believe, is just simply a crutch on how we make it through difficult things. It's a crutch. It's something that helps us, right? It's not real. It's just something that gets us through difficult circumstances. So if we can just kind of believe that there's a God out there that can help us, and if we can just kind of believe that, that that God is one we can pray to and he can hear us, that'll help us get through this difficult circumstance and situation. But it's not real. That's what the world is saying, ultimately. That's a, it's not real. It's just a crutch, but what we know as believers is what is truly real is the fact that there is a God who sits on the throne and who rules and reigns over all things. That is reality. And anytime you step outside of that reality, you're moving into an alternative reality where there is no hope, there is no true joy, there is no real satisfaction, and there is no glory in the future. You see, what the world is offering is an alternative reality to the truth. It lets you think that you're in charge. It lets you think that you're, you're the only one you have to answer to. It lets you think that this world can satisfy you. It lets you think that all of these things in this world added up will bring you joy and pleasure only for you to realize that that's a false reality that cannot sustain itself in any way. The only thing real is that there's a God in heaven and even in the glorious difficulty of this world and the pain that we face every single day, what reminds us every day we can get through it is there's one who's in control who rules and reigns over all of it. And God is in control. And Paul says, I've come to the end. That's not something for Paul to fear. It's just something to hear him to admit. He's not worried about death. Don't we all want to get there, by the way? Don't we all want to get to that place where we're not fearing death? For how do, you, how do you deal with this, right? Death is something that the scriptures say is certain for each and every one of us. Death has entered for sin. All of us have sinned. For the wages of sin is death. And it's appointed for man to die once. So death is coming for us all. But what we don't know is when it may come. We know it's coming, 
But for all we know, it could be for us today. It could be coming for any of us at this moment. It could be coming at any time. We don't know. So how do you prepare for something like that? Something you know is coming, but you have no idea when it will come. How do you prepare for that? You prepare for it right now. You prepare yourself, your heart right now to even face it. And so Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. What he's saying is I'm ready for anything right now because I am in Christ. And so here, ultimately, Paul says, I'm not concerned about death. I have lived my life as an offering before the Lord, and my end is come. I'm not concerned about death. As the old uh, Southern Gospel song says, death ain't no big deal. For precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Paul is resting in that reality. And I pray, seriously, I pray, that each and every one of you can rest in that reality as well. That there is a God who sits on the throne, who is in control, and you don't have to fear even death, for you rest in him. Paul knows what is real. No matter what the Roman government does to him, God is in control. And just as he says in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul had seen before the earthquake and the doors of the jail spring open and the chains fall off. Y'all remember that. Paul had seen before him getting bit by a, a venomous snake that should have killed him, but he was miraculously healed. He'd been through shipwrecks. He'd been beaten. He had seen all the miraculous nature of God. He knows that the greatest miracle of all is that the Lord Jesus Christ will take that sinner, which was the chief. Paul himself, he says, he will take him, make him pure, make him righteous, and bring him safely home with him in glory forever. The Lord will rescue me, Paul says. That's his reality. Man, my prayer is that each and every one of you in this room knows that same reality. Knows that same reality. And Paul, having faced his reality, looks back at his race. That's what he says next. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As Paul looks back over his life, he uses two images to discuss how he has fulfilled his ministry, a fight and a race. Both of these, I think, if you're a child of God, if you've been a Christian for some time, these are good descriptions, right? You fought the good fight. Paul is given the impression here not that he is a great warrior. He's not given the idea that he is some glorious warrior that's out there fighting the battle on his own. No, he's fought the good fight. In other words, he is a soldier in the army of the Lord fighting against evil with his other soldiers out there, with his other friends fighting with him. He is not giving some idea of some glorious, strong warrior. He's just giving him some idea of a faithful soldier who is fighting the good fight, the fight of light versus darkness, the fight of truth over error, the fight of righteousness over unrighteousness. Paul says, I've been fighting that fight. The name of Christ Jesus is the name that he carries. He's not necessarily a great fighter, but he's been fighting the good fight. And so for us, we hopefully do the same thing and walk with the Lord. We're simply called to be soldiers in the army of the Lord that fight the good fight, not with the weapons of this world, but with love and patience and kindness and joy and goodness. We fight against the dark, darkness and evil. Paul's no innocent bystander, and neither are we if we're children of God. He's no innocent bystander in the fight. He's in the midst of it, and he says, I have fought it. He continues, this proclamation of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom, faithful ambassador, Paul has done it all. He says, I have finished the race. 
we see the fighting of the good fight is that idea of joining in together with other believers to fight against evil and darkness, right? So you're joining in. Really, we see what we're doing here as this embassy of the kingdom of God. We, as those who have been purchased by Christ, who have been good soldiers in the fight, come together on Sunday morning. We hear encouragement from the word. We sing praises to our king, and we step out of here ready to fight the good fight of faith, right? We do that together. Now Paul is going to give this image of finishing the race. This is what we do by ourselves, right? This is what we do alone. This is this everyday grind. This is this, is this me getting up and doing what I know is right. The good fight puts us with others. The race puts us alone. And it doesn't matter if you're on a team. When you're running a race, you're out there by yourself. You're out there all alone. So Paul says, that's it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. This is the individual side of the Christian life. He stayed faithful to the end. I have kept the faith and fought. He did not start out, falter, and stop. He did not get going and then quit along the way. Paul says, I have kept running. I keep going. I keep going. I'm thankful sometimes, and I know others are in here as well who have preached funerals of godly saints, those that you know, if they're not in heaven, I'm not going. Y'all know those kind of people? And you preach the funerals of those godly saints, and I praise God for that. While it's difficult, we know separation here. I am so jealous sometimes of the fact that those godly saints have fought the good fight and they have finished their race. And their reward is there, right? And so that encourages me even to keep going. That's what Paul is saying. He's trying to encourage Timothy to keep going, keep running. This speaks to perseverance. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures or perseveres to the end will be saved. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. We oftentimes focus really, uh, and rightly so, on the beginning of the race. Someone, we share the gospel, they come and accept the gospel, they believe, they get baptized. We see the beginning of the race. We focus, we see that. But Jesus says it's not just the beginning while we go and baptize them, it's also getting them to the finish line as well. That we want to end well. Jesus says not only you begin, you must end. And while we talk about once saved, always saved, I believe that with all my heart. But the focus is on the if you are, if you are not saved issue. If you're a child of God and you've been redeemed by Christ Jesus, you've been snatched out of the fire, brought into new life, you've been taken off the wide way onto the narrow way, the heart of stone's been ripped out and a new heart's been given in, and you who were once dead have now been made alive, you will continue on the path following after Christ running the race. If you do not, it may be a testimony of the fact that you never were his child in the first place. Do you finish the race? Do you keep running? Paul is encouraging here for perseverance to say, you got to keep going, Timothy. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Keep going. But Paul wants to also make this clear that while perseverance is a must, we must finish. We will only finish if we continue in the strength that God gives us. God is the one who fights the good fight for us. God is the one who gives us strength for every step along the way. As Paul says to the Colossians, him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's talking about perseverance. We preach Christ so we can warn them, 
we can teach them, we can build them up in wisdom so that they will finish well. And we can present them to the Lord finished. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. In other words, my fight that I'm fighting and my race that I'm running and all that I'm doing in the ministry, the strength comes from the Lord in every bit of it. That's why we say, the more we walk with the Lord, the sweeter it gets. Because if you're a child of God today and you got any age on you, I'm not looking on anybody in particular. You've been following the Lord for a while. Here's what you know, what your testimony is, I'm sure, is that every day you go, it's not the idea that you're getting stronger and you need less of God, right? Every day you walk on this, run this race, every step you get, the older you get, the more you run, the more with every step you know you are in desperate need of his strength. You see, as the, the, the works backwards for us, right? When we run, we get stronger. We can continue. We build up our stamina. We can do other things in this race, but not in the Christian race. When we run, we recognize with every step, I need more of Jesus. With every step, I need more of Jesus. With every step, I need more of him and more of him and more of him until we know that all of our strength is found right there. He runs our ideas of our own strength out and puts his in our understanding. And that's why we can say he just keeps getting sweeter every day. It's not as if he gives us more of himself. It's as if we recognize every single day we need more of him. And he has never failed us to be the strength that we need to run this race. So my encouragement to you is stay close to Christ. If you're going to persevere to the end, which Jesus says you must, stay close to Christ. Don't falter. Depend on him more. Don't become conceited that you can do this on your own. Depend on him more. Stay close to him. And if that's the case, you stay close to him running this race. He looks ahead, as Paul does here, to the reward that we will get. He understands his reality. He sees his race, and he goes to his reward. The reward for those that persevere to the end, a crown of righteousness placed on the head by the king himself, crowning us victorious. You see, the one who comes safely home in the winter circles, the one who wins. And every single person that finished the race will get this image as Paul does it, this crown that's given of a, a laurel wreath that they would use back in those days to the victor. They'd place that one. He'd step into the winter circle, place that crown on his head. Paul says, I'm getting that crown. But that crown is not some temporary laurel wreath over this race. That crown is over the race of life. And the Lord is, himself is going to give me and crown me righteous because of his righteousness. Crown me victorious because he brings me safely home. Paul says, that's what we look to. Isn't that the case for all of us though, right? We want to be victorious. Don't we all want to win? You got to have a little bit of competitive nature in you. Well, if you desire to win, if you desire to find strength in life, if you desire to get to the end safely home, then the only way you will get there is by depending upon Jesus for all of it in every step. Paul says, that's perseverance. That's it. Now, as he steps to the end of this, Paul wants to make clear, thinking about his reality, his race, the reward coming, he wants to warn Timothy that there's going to be difficulty on this race. And the place that will bring the most difficulty will be relationships. 
They'll find, and when I say that, you'll find the greatest strength and joy in relationships. Paul says that to Timothy. In fact, as he goes through this next list, you find Timothy, you find uh, Luke, you find Titus, you find Crescens, you find Tychicus, you find Carpus. All of these are a joy to Paul. You keep on going down. Prisca and Aquila, Onesiphorus, Erastus, all of these are a joy to Paul. And in those relationships, he finds strength. He says, Timothy, come to me. I need you. I need you here with me. He finds strength. And if you are going to, to live this life very much, you're going to know that life is about people, not just systems and structures and all these other organisms. It's ultimately about people. And if you're going to be in any kind of ministry capacity at all, you're going to know that's dealing with people. And everybody will have to do this. Relationships become a, a, a valuable part of who we are. Two relationships I want to point out as I close. First, we saw all of those that are faithful. But the first one he mentions in verse 10, Paul says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul mentions this one Demas. What a source of discouragement. Paul had invested in him like Luke, like Timothy, like all the others. He had, uh, Demas had heard the messages of Paul, heard the teaching of Paul, understood all of those things. Yet in the midst of it, he loved the world more than that. And he stumbled and he left. Demas becomes a testimony of the one who's not finishing his race. Demas becomes a testimony for Paul of the one who, who is not of us. He's, he's departed from us. You thought he was here. Now he's gone. And when I, when I read this about Demas, it says he's utterly abandoned us. He's not fighting the good fight. He's not finishing the race. He heard everything. What a warning Demas becomes for all of us. Like Judas himself, who saw and heard all of the teachings of Christ and all of the miracles of Christ, Demas had been with Paul from the beginning, but yet that was not enough. The pull of the world was able to snag him, even him, and pull him out so much so that he said he loved the world more than anything else, and he left. May that not be any one of us. May that not be any one of us in here, that the world, you think, becomes more precious than the, than the Savior himself. May we not leave and flee what, what is glorious and true for what is fading away and passing. May we not leave and flee from what is, what is right and holy, from what is unholy and defiled. Demas loved the world and he left. He deserted. He faltered. He fell. Obviously a great discouragement for Paul, but look down in verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. This Mark character is an interesting one as well. Maybe a, while Demas is great discouragement, Mark is great encouragement. Mark was on the first missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. Mark got homesick about halfway through the missionary journey and left them, abandoned the journey, left and went back home. When they got back home at the end of the journey, they gave a report. They're getting ready to head out for their second missionary journey. And Barnabas is like, hey, let's take Mark with us. And Paul said, no, nah, he left us. I don't want anything to do with Mark. Don't bring Mark. He's already bailed on us one time. We're not doing it. And the great duo of Paul and Barnabas split apart. Barnabas takes Mark and he goes one way. Paul takes Silas. He goes another. This great duo splits apart. And but that separation had caused this. Mark... Mark was one that Paul at the time did not think very useful. But notice what he says here. He's useful to me for ministry. 
Some 20 years later, there has been reconciliation. Some 20 years later, Mark has come back into the ministry. And even though those may go away, the testimony of Mark is they can come back again and be restored. So the prayers never end. They never stop. They never quit. And while we, we hate when Demas happens, we hate when those who we know have heard the gospel move away from it and run away, we rejoice at the same time when Mark happens. There's encouragement and there's discouragement. And with Mark coming here at this point, we keep praying for those who are Demas, right? And if you in this room may be one of those, your testimony may be that of Mark, that you left and went away, but God safely brought you home. That testimony in this church is deathly needed because there are some who have been amongst us who have left out from us just like Demas, and they need someone to go after them. They need it. And here we find this, Paul says, is a rejoicing there's a rejoicing here because we got some who encouraged me. We got some who discouraged me. We got some even like Alexander the coppersmith who outright opposed me. And Timothy, if you're going to preach the gospel, you need to know that. Some are going to fail you. Some are going to stand beside you. Some are going to desert you. All of them are going to desert you at one time. And there may be some who will outright oppose you. But the Lord stands by you, Timothy, for what he knows at this very moment. What Paul is saying to Timothy is there's going to be one who will never leave you nor forsake you. There's going to be one who will never disappoint you. There's going to be one who will never step away. There's going to be one who will never falter or fail you. There's going to be one that's the basis for all of your relationships. You can face whatever the relationships bring because you have this one as the standard of them all. Jesus Christ, your Savior. And he will strengthen you. And he will he will help you to be fruitful. He will rescue you at the time you need it. He will deliver you safely home. And what Paul says is that all of those, all of those who want to be saved, all of those who have Christ back there in verse 8, he says anybody who runs the race, anybody who stays faithful, anybody who makes their way safely home, you need to know that the Lord Jesus will bring you there. This is not just for ministers. This is for all of us. He will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I'm sure at this point in this letter, if Paul could, he would sing the verses of what a friend we have in Jesus, right? All our sins and griefs to bear. What Paul knows is the most precious thing in the world is his relationship with Christ. And because he has that, he keeps fighting because he has that, he keeps running. Because he has that, he keeps investing in others, even when they disappoint him, even when they fail him, even when they rejoice when they come back, he keeps investing. Why? Because he has a Savior who never, ever will leave him. He keeps preaching. Why? Because he has a Savior who will never desert him. He keeps proclaiming even in prison. Why? Because he has a Savior who will bring him safely home. That's what Paul knows. And Paul wants Timothy to never, ever forget that. He won't leave you, Timothy. You better not leave him. That becomes the message of 2 Timothy. He won't leave you. You better not leave him. And that's my desire for each and every one of you. I can say with full confidence, he won't leave you. Don't leave him. Don't leave him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. God, just as you have saved us, I pray that you will keep us. 
There's some here today, Father, I think are just like Demas. They started out well, but they have faltered. And somehow today, God, you have brought them back to this place. Whatever the circumstances may be, whatever discussions were, however that process and thought came in their head, they're back here today. God, may their testimony not be of one like Demas, who left and abandoned, but maybe one of Mark, who came back ready to work and be useful. God, bring them back safely. Use your spirit to work in their hearts and lives now, Father. And if there's some here today that have never started on this journey, they hadn't started running their race, may today they recognize that the only race that leads to the glorious victory at the end of eternal life is the race we run in Christ Jesus our Lord. So may they run to Christ today, trusting in him, trusting in him. If there's any here today, Father, that needs to trust in Jesus for the first time, I pray, God, that you would work in their hearts, that they would even come forward to let us know of this decision. Anybody here that wants to join our church to be a part of this body, Father, give them the strength and encouragement to join and be a part of all that we're doing so that we can run this race together, so that we can fight this good fight together. But God, I pray above all things that Jesus Christ will be exalted in each and every heart and life. And that's what I ask now, even as we stand and sing. Let's do that together.